Love Hello, Talk folks. Radio. Good evening, folks, in cyberspace. This is Dr. Simon, and my show is The Stories We Live By. And today we're going to talk about the story or the fable or the myth of addiction. And this is one of the most pernicious and dangerous and ugly of all of the um, myths that have been produced by the uh, what I call the mental health industry, which has spun off the addiction industry. Uh, well-meaning in most cases, or in many cases, <clears throat> but completely uh, offline in terms of what the ultimate effects are, because uh, nobody can say uh, or point to any evidence whatsoever that the rate of drug use or drinking um, that could be dangerous or destructive to the individual, family, or society is in any way uh, reduced. Moreover, since the uh, assault on our sensibilities as citizens from the drug uh, uh, industry and the the uh, um, the uh, in the mental health industry uh, have have convinced us that we're all a bunch of uh, junkies or potential junkies um, and need endless amounts of help. Uh, nothing good has come of it. It's been completely destructive. So what I want to do tonight uh, is discuss a variety of terms or a variety of ideas related to undermine this industry because it's undermining us as citizens, it's undermining our democracy, it's undermining our image of ourselves, and we're eating it up. And uh, unless we start to think more clearly, uh, I've given up on the idea that professionals will think more clearly about any of this. Um, once you begin to earn your living and you're indoctrinated into uh, the system that uh, asserts without evidence uh, that something like addiction exists in the same way that mental illness or disorders exist, literally, not figuratively, not metaphorically, but literally, uh, you can't convince professionals to even examine or look at the ideas uh, that they're promoting, uh, however useless and dangerous they are. Um, Food has to be put on the table, the mortgage has to be paid, the profession has to be maintained, um, and, and this is how it works. Uh, only when citizens begin to, um, only when citizens begin to think clearly and public opinion changes uh, does the power structure in any society uh, and the conventional wisdom change, and it does change. It changes over years, it changes over centuries, uh, and this hopefully will change someday. Um, but again, from the shows I've been doing recently about the death of democracy in America and the destruction of our uh, society, uh, may not come until the damage is uh, completed. And um, 
there really is no capacity for uh, any kind of questioning and any kind of uh, political or economic or intellectual uh, movement against these ideas. So let me start with the word addiction. It's a meaningless term. And what it's used to, for uh, is a double, it's a double meaning. One, it is a judgment that says there is something wrong with people who, in somebody's opinion, drink too much or drink the wrong stuff or people who uh, smoke, <clears throat> however destructive that might be to their body, they continue to smoke or take a variety of other drugs uh, most of which have been declared illegal and uh, in league with the devil. Um, also, we've extended in the last 25, 30 years, people who like sex beyond somebody's judgment about um, uh, how much sex and with whom one should have sex, uh, or people who gamble and spend the milk money for the children, uh, all of these things are called addictions. And clearly, it's a pejorative term to say that somebody's addicted implies that there's something wrong with them. Again, it's not that these things might not be a problem, but to define it as a, in moral terms and pretend that this is a scientific term with scientific evidence is a big problem because it's not a scientific term, it's a moral term. But moreover, the term addiction now explains or purports to explain why the person drinks as they do or smokes as they do or gambles as they do or has sex uh, as, they, as they have sex. And it explains nothing. It explains nothing. We're chasing our tail in the same way uh, that somebody um, uh, uh, hears voices and we say they're psychotic and that explains wh why they hear voices. It explains nothing. We're going around like the giant Yutzburg of South America. This was the giant bird that only flies one time. When it leaves the nest with one wing longer than the other, it flies in ever-diminishing concentric circles until it disappears of its own asshole. And this is what we do, and we do this all the time. So we're going to talk about addiction, and what it is, as a word, is meaningless. It is a moral pejorative that purports to explain a two-for-one job. It's one thing to say uh, you're a bad person or you're something wrong with you for, for drinking or gambling or having sex with too many people or too many times in our opinion, because all moral judgments are in our opinion. Uh, they can never be factual. Um, the, 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 the acts can be factually described and proven, but the, the idea that this is wrong is a moral opinion. And in many cases, I agree with the moral opinion, but not the pretense that if we produce this moral word addiction, it is not a moral term, it's a scientific term, and that it explains anything. Okay? But what has emerged is the notion that if you're addicted, this is a lifelong problem, a lifelong problem, and that you can't deal 
with the addiction yourself. You need some kind of external help. This may be true or it may not be true. But to make these categorical statements that you need lifelong help, there's no evidence for it. In fact, my own evidence, the, the, the work I've done over the years as a therapist, tells me uh, that this is not true. Um, l- let, me, let me start with something very interesting. When I was 16 years old, I started to smoke. Or maybe I was 15 or 17. I don't really remember. Everybody smoked. All my friends smoked. Uh, when I went out with my wife, she smoked. Humphrey Bogart, John Garfield, all the actors in the movies, the cool people smoked. Doctors really knew that smoking was bad for your health, but it didn't matter. They didn't have the floor. The drug companies promoted all kinds of information that smoking was actually good for you. Uh, It was relaxing. uh, It was good for your health. Uh, Certain brands were better for your health than other brands. Uh, I remember I smoked Kent with the Micronite filter. Uh, I really liked Marlboro's uh, much better. They had much more flavor. There was a much more enjoyable smoke, Marlboro's. And the Marlboro man, like so much of what was promoted by um, by the smoking industry, by the, the, the death industry, the tobacco industry, uh, uh, which behaved uh, in a typical psychopathic form that so many... Um, uh, um, corporations behave, profits before life, profits before health, um, promoted this. Doctors knew that there was something really wrong with smoking. Um, my father, when he was 37, and who smoked two packs of Lucky Strikes from the time he was probably uh, not even adolescence, had a first heart attack, and he was dead at 40 by his third. And I didn't think I would ever smoke, but I did. Uh, It was cool. And I found smoking to be pleasant. I found it to, uh, uh, when I tried to talk to a girl, it gave me space to light a cigarette, to think about what to say, to offer a cigarette. Um, By the way, I just lost my thought here. The Marlboro man, who was uh, a cowboy, and, and a cool character promoted uh, um, tobacco. He died of lung cancer uh, some years later and went on a rampage on the air to say that uh, he had killed himself with cigarettes and that people shouldn't smoke. And boy, did they go after him as they would go after anybody who would stand up and say that tobacco could be unhealthy for you. But I smoked. And then when I was about... Um, 22, 23, it was in the early 60s, Reader's Digest produced an article by a scientist by the name of John Hammond. I think his first name was John. I know it was Hammond. Dr. Hammond produced evidence that smoking caused lung cancer. And more evidence began to come out that it caused bladder cancer, stomach cancer, that it was a real killer. I also knew that if I had a, went to a party and I had a couple of drinks, uh, I would smoke more to be cool. And I would wake up the next morning, I could set the wall on fire and burn my pillow just by breathing on it because my breath was so stinky. And my throat hurt all the time. And I had all kinds of headaches and sinus infections. But I wasn't about to give it up. 
until the evidence really began to come out. But I wasn't alone in this. When I was 26 and my wife became pregnant, I gave up smoking. I'm going to talk about that experience because it's an important one um, uh, in, in understanding how the addiction industry and the so-called treatment industry, the drug treatment industry, actually operates. Um, well, anyway, uh, I decided that uh, by that time, my father probably had left me uh, to grow up without him, my brother and I, and my mother as a widow, um, to uh, stop smoking. And uh, it took a long time. It took me six months, really, to go from a smoker who was not smoking to one morning waking up and saying, boy, I'm not a smoker, and I don't even know how I ever did that. It's dirty. It's disgusting. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I never did. The idea that I would ever put a cigarette in my mouth again um, is just abhorrent to me. Uh, in any event, I wasn't alone. During that period, millions and millions of my fellow citizens gave up smoking. Over the next 10 or 15 years, the amount that the proportion of the adult population in the United States that smoked went from 80% to less than 20%. We're talking now, boys and girls, about tens of millions of people. I have a question. How did tens of millions of people end their quote-unquote addiction without pills, without therapy? They threw away their cigarettes. They struggled with it. Sometimes we went back, sometimes, but we struggled with it. We made a choice, and I'm going to talk about that at great length before this hour is up, not to smoke. We dealt with the deprivation, we dealt with the feeling of loss, we dealt with the withdrawal, and we stopped smoking. How is that possible? Well, let me tell you it's not possible today. The American public now has been completely undermined, undermined in its ability to say, I'm going to stop, do some, not do something that may be harmful for me. I'm going to struggle with something. And I'm going to do it by myself, or I'm going to do it with, with the kind of help of friends and family. No, today it has to be done with pills, with potentially dangerous drugs, and endless amounts of intervention from all kinds of, of, of organizations that purport to demonstrate uh, that they have the uh, method to withdraw you and, and help you uh, beat your ad addiction. That's how it, how it works. Now, let me put a little story in here. About 10 years after that, when I be first became a psychologist, um, a friend of mine said that he had an opportunity to get a group of people in and start a stop smoking. By that time, it was starting to develop that you didn't stop smoking by yourself, you had to have a professional help you stop smoking. Today, you have to have a professional stop you from having sex, taking drugs, gambling. Everything requires a professional or a self-help group. 
And uh, health insurance pays for that. And when those people who are concerned about bankrupting our health insurance system uh, maybe start to look around at whether or not um, the actual behavior is a medical issue, uh, maybe we can uh, start to save a few hundred billion dollars on programs that are of dubious worth and based upon a lie, based upon a total lie. I'll talk about AA and some of the others in a little bit, because while they can be helpful, they're predicated on that same lie. That is, you can't do it, and you're a lifelong loser who cannot do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. The struggle is beyond you. So, let's go back into history a little bit. Um, oh, I'm sorry, talking about the, the program. Uh, my mind is a little disjointed tonight. You'll forgive me. Um, so about 115, 120 people showed up uh, in a room that we arranged, my friend and I, uh, and I spoke to them. And I told them about my personal struggle to stop smoking, which really took a period of about six months. Now, it's interesting. Today you'll be told that it's the withdrawal from the pharmacological effects of the nicotine and the other drugs. Uh, it's not true. There is withdrawal, and sometimes withdrawal can be very powerful and serious. Sometimes you really do need medical help, real medical help, to intervene and help you withdraw from some of these toxic substances to which your body has become adapted and it's an adaptation. But within with tobacco, a day or two, it's out of your system. It's gone. I love smoking. I couldn't go to bed in the morning, in the afternoon and the evening, without smoking a cigarette. My morning cup of coffee was not complete without a cigarette. I referred to cigarettes as my friend. And anybody who I've ever spoken to who smoked felt the same way. They were a comfort. They were, as I have spoken on this show many times before, an adaptation to my life. They were there all the time. And when I smoked when I was younger, it was 10 cents a pack. There was no tax on it. By the time I gave it up, by the way, at 26, it had gone to 26 cents a pack. It had been 25 for a while. And living in New York, they raised it a penny a penny more tax on it, and it became 26 cents, uh, and that's when I stopped. Today, what is it? It's $4, $5, incredible amount of money um, <clears throat> to kill yourself with that weed. But it was a comfort. What was so difficult to do was to reorganize my life, the adaptation to my life, to change my image as a smoker to a non-smoker. What did I do instead of my evening cigarette? What did I do when I smoked, uh, had a cup of coffee and I couldn't have a cigarette? Well, one of the things I actually did was to stop, smoke, uh, stop drinking coffee for a while. Uh, the evening cigarette, that was tough. The worst was a party. Go to a party and hold a vodka in one hand and not a cigarette in the other. Uh, this, this was just utter psychological pain. And I became very sensitive 
to the struggle and the pain that people do go to to reorient their lives, the story of their lives, the identity that they have, um, uh, uh, and how they uh, solve their problems without the drugs, the alcohol, or in this case, the tobacco. And I explained this to the audience. And the following week, 15 people showed up. The week after that, there was no more program. And my friend was very angry because we could have made a lot of money. And he said, why did you have to be so negative? And I said to him, I'm not being negative. I'm not being negative. Nobody will give up a habit. And that's what this is, a bad habit. They're all bad habits. No one will follow this through without struggling with a change in their identity, struggling to reorient their life without whatever that thing brought them. Okay? I lost my friend. I was no longer in my image a cool guy with, with a Kent. Rather had a Marlboro, but it was a Kent with the Micronite filter uh, between my fingers. I couldn't have the pack of cigarettes in my pocket so that whenever I felt embarrassed or guilty or tense, immediately my hand would go to the pocket and pull the cigarette. I had a really nice uh, lighter. I think it was called the Calibri made the lighter. And I would light my cigarette uh, and all was well. Okay? Was I addicted? No. This was a choice I was making. This was part of my lifestyle. This was part of my adaptation to life. Today, as I watch television and people, smiling, happy people tell me on television that they took drugs. There's one out now called Chantix, uh, a drug. And what they all purport is that this could be done painlessly. You'll be smiling, you'll be happy. Two weeks later... <coughs> No more habit, no more smoking, no more this, no more that. The drug companies are falling over themselves to find drugs. And increasingly, uh, the drugs they come up with are basically antidepressants. Um, I just had a psychiatrist to give a patient where I work a Wellbutrin, which is a well-known old-line antidepressant. It has some terrible side effects. Um, uh, and, and, and right, well, it didn't work. We'll have to try something else. Try appealing to the person's good sense to make a different choice. And I'll talk about choice. Now, there are certain historical uh, issues related here. And they're built into our society. And unless we understand how they're built into the society, we really can't understand uh, how this nonsense that you need lifelong help, drugs, support groups, um, for the rest of your life to get off and stay off uh, uh, some drug or some activity that uh, has been judged to be an addiction, found such fertile ground. And it really has to be understood historically through religion. We're sinners according to religion. And Catholicism, which was the dominant religion in Western culture and Western society before there was in America, had developed the notion of uh, confession. 
It had created a group, a priestly class of individuals called Father. Uh, Jesus said, call no man on this earth your father. I guess he must have accepted the idea your father could be called your father. But call no man other than your father, father. And here all of these priests were now called father. And they held the keys to heaven. You can get rid of your sinfulness if you went to confession, did an act of contrition, uh, promised not to do it again, and were absolved of the sin by the father priest. Okay? Psychologically a very powerful thing, and I won't go into how I feel about that, uh, but certainly open up the newspaper any given day and see the kind of corruption that comes with that kind of power. Okay? Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll deal with the, the sex and, and the church another time. The corruption of the church was so powerful it led to a rebellion. And this was the Protestant rebellion. For many of the Protestant sects, there is no confession. You are born a sinner. You are born. But that, all you can do is struggle to overcome your sinfulness. Now what most people don't understand historically is that it is determined by God at birth, or maybe before birth, who will be able to overcome their sinfulness, to prove their worthiness, their superiority as a human being, and who won't? This is so much a part of our society. When uh, uh, Mitt Romney made his speech about the 47%, that's what's there. The mooches can never really respond to the good guys. There's nothing you really have to do to help these individuals. They're really beyond help. You are born in sin and you're born inferior or ultimately you're born superior. There's a bifurcation, there's a separation going on here. Now this particular doctrine really kind of got driven underground with the rise of science. And I want to recommend a book to you by Carl Degler, D-E-G-L-E-R, which is called In Search of Human Nature. There's a long subtitle, but you don't need that to find the book. And what Degler points out, that this particular philosophy of superior and inferior human beings was taken over by the prostitution and the misinterpretation of Darwinian theory. So today we are told that addictions are the result of biological and especially genetic processes. The fact that nobody has ever found a gene for addiction doesn't stop the, the spreading of this nasty rumor. The fact that there are no biological markers that can differentiate people who are going to smoke from not smoke. Uh, it's all done by behavior. It's pointed out that children who grow up in families of alcoholics or people who drink heavily, I'm sorry I used the word alcoholic, that's another nasty word that has, that's a moral term that has no meaning. You drink so you're an alcoholic, and why do you drink? Because you're an alcoholic. You just put your head right up your ass again. So, the, the, the uh, notion that you're genetically inferior or medically inferior has no proof to it. 
Nobody has ever found a medical test that can predict who will take drugs or drink or smoke. It doesn't exist. So it's pointed out that the children of alcoholics are more tend to be alcoholics, and kids who grow up in a home that smokes uh, will tend... Well, uh, it's also true that parents who go to college have children who go to college more often than parents who don't have, have children uh, who don't go to college. Oh, there must be a gene for going to college. No. We're talking about a cultural indoctrination. We're talking about children who watch the adaptation of their parents, and the watching of our parents is what teaches us how to solve our problems and how to live our lives. Not completely, not completely, but it's one of the elements. So we have this idea that there are superior genetic people or superior people by the hand of God and inferior. And it is worked its way into society. The liberal and the conservative deal with this differently. The conservative says, since these people are really hopeless, you don't have to have social programs for them. Forget about it. There's nothing you can do. They're never going to vote for me, said Mitt Romney. The mooches are beyond our help. That really got people upset because whether they consciously related to it or not, they realized he was saying they're beyond hope. You can't give them help. The, the right-winger also adds the doctrine, I am superior, nobody's ever helped me. One of the most bizarre ideas, they never had parents, they never had teachers, they never had money handed down to them. They've done it all themselves. They are self-made men and women, mostly men. Right? A bizarre notion that has, again, on the face of it, flies in the face of all reality. What has happened is that the liberals have said, yes, these people are inferior and we have to help them. This is our job to help them. And we have to create programs that will help them. And they have to be in these programs for the rest of their lives because they're damaged. They're inferior. The way in which my professional buddies in the mental health field create dependency, the way in which these programs operate, uh, is really very scary. Uh, you can't get better. You can't leave it. Uh, I worked in a mental health clinic for 25 years or more. If, and if an individual uh, tried to break free of the system, you're schizophrenic, you're schizophrenic for life. Don't you even think of getting out. If you do, it's evidence that you're having a breakdown. All of these systems teach the same idea. AA is a wonderful program in many ways. It gives emotional, moral, spiritual, all kinds of support for an individual. It gives them somebody to call if they feel they're going to fall off the wagon and, and, and start drinking again. But it is built on the notion that you need this help because it is beyond your coping ability ever to change it by yourself. And take one more cigarette, take one drink, you're right back in the heart of the addiction, whether or not there's any evidence for that. And by the way, there's no evidence for that. It is true that some people who take their first drink climb into the bottle and never want to leave for whatever the reasons are. But most of us 
are like those of us who gave up smoking. I love a glass of wine with dinner. My stomach bothers me. and I don't drink it. And I'm not alone. Most people operate this way. We make a deal with ourselves. We choose how much to imbibe or whether to smoke or whether not to smoke because every one of us has the potential capacity to make choices about how we live our life. But according to the doctrines that are now sweeping our land, we don't have those choices. If we get involved, we are involved because we were defective. And our defect, whether it is by God's hand or a moral defect or a genetic or biological defect, says we're doomed. The only way we can stop is with some kind of help. This is the philosophy that undermines our democracy and undermines our very way of life as independent citizens, as real people capable of being creative. It sucks the money, and it, 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 and it destroys the image we might have of ourselves as creative citizens, the concept that I constantly talk about and use on these shows, that we can write our own story and put into that story and act out on our story what we wish as we believe it's good for us and in our interest to do. So this is some of the historical material that particularly in Western culture, particularly in America, has found such fertile ground. Anybody listening? 716-7756 at 646. Call in and let me know. I'm always amazed that the thousands of people who listen to this show on archive, or parts of the show, I never even know. I probably could find out, but I don't want to know how many people actually listen through to these particular broadcast because I have such a good time doing them and I like the idea that maybe uh, I'm a little crazy that people really do listen to them but I'm always amazed that nobody calls in um, either gives me a piece of their mind or agrees it's like I'm talking into air however it's okay so what's the answer to all of this the answer to all of this really is a political, moral, social, intellectual philosophy uh, that I subscribe to and says, don't dehumanize human beings. Uh, as the, my great teacher, a wonderful intellectual scholar, a brilliant psychologist, I, before I talk about Isidore Chines, the image of psychology and the image of man, let me talk about his earliest study with two other people who I forget the names of, uh, called The Road to H. Chine studied uh, on the street level as a sociologist the uh, use of heroin. And what he found is, again, there's a small group of individuals who, when they take their first shot of heroin or their first snort of heroin, climb into the powder and uh, have great difficulty uh, or choose never to come out. But most people don't become addicted. They deal with and smoke or take it when it's appropriate as in their eye to take it, and they stop when they don't. This is true. The Road to H by Isidore Chine, and I forget the other two names. I'm sure it's still around. You can get it on Amazon. Read it. 
There are so many studies the same way. Just as tens of millions of people stopped smoking because they discovered how dangerous it was to their health, people will engage in this activity at their whim, at their will. And when the time has come that they deem it appropriate to stop using, they stop. But you don't hear that. All you hear is you're defective and dangerous. The fact that we've criminalized all of these terrible uh, drugs, the, the, what could be potentially dangerous, criminalized it, comes from the same philosophy. If you're bad and defective, we have to protect you from yourself. We now have more people in jail in the United States for nonviolent crimes, mostly related to drugs, than any other country on earth, except perhaps communist China, where they arrest people for all kinds of things willy-nilly. Law enforcement begs us to stop this crazy process. It's not working. The people who want to use these drugs are going to use them. The big markets from which Mexico sends is here. Mexico is becoming a failed state because the money and the armaments that can be bought protecting the interests of those who sell the drugs and import it into the United States is greater than law enforcement. It's greater than, almost greater than the federal government. So not only have we warped out our judicial system because the amount of money that can be used to bribe the police and bribe the judiciary is so uh, massive, but we've put people in jail, three strikes and you're out, lock people up for, for buying or selling or using drugs because they're bad, it's the devil, it's weakness, it's morally corrupt, and we are whopping the entire society out on that level. These guys uh, who sell the drugs and protect their interests have more firepower than the police. It's a terrible, dangerous situation, and all unnecessary. So, what do we do? Well, we need a new image of ourselves. And the image is as follows. And I had a discussion with a young man just recently who was struggling to stay off alcohol. And he said, uh, he goes to AA, and I applauded that. I said, but there's a piece of that that I don't think is particularly true. And that is you have no choice. I don't know of any disease that causes you to lift your elbow from the bar and put the glass to your lips. This is a choice. My image of human beings is that they are capable of making choice, that they live lives within a context and they have a history. And the choices that they make are based, in part, based on the pressures that they discover in their society and the, and, and the history that they've lived. I used to talk about this with my students. And most of my students said they wouldn't ever take drugs. Most of them had tried it. Didn't become addicted. They tried pot, like pot, sometimes would smoke pot. By the way, if it was legal, I'd smoke it probably tonight. Uh, wonderful drug. Been around for 10,000 years. 
if it's not used too often, and I always would worry about the smoking because the heat from the uh, uh, from the marijuana from the reefer can burn your lungs and burn your throat. Not a particularly healthy thing, but nothing better occasionally than to get high on some good pot. Um, they said I wouldn't do this. I said why? Well, I play basketball. I'm on a team. Uh, I wouldn't want to disappoint my parents. In other words, people choose in their lives what's available to them and what they get satisfaction from. And there are really two kinds of ways of looking at any behavior. There are behaviors that make us happy and bring us pleasure. And then there are behaviors that help us escape or reduce pain and discomfort. Most people who experiment with drugs get pleasure out of it. Don't get involved if the drug isn't a primary source of reducing emotional pain that they don't understand and can't come to grips with any other way. I've discovered this, and every therapist I know has discovered this. Of course, that's all wrapped up with the other uh, uh, part of the fable, that this is your brain, this is genetics, you're inferior, and you really can't do this on your own. You have a vulnerability. Maybe so. But I think the vulnerability, in my experience, is more social and more uh, uh, psychological than it is necessarily biological. So what happens then is that my students would tell me, I have a girlfriend, I have a job, I choose to do those things, and I won't get involved with drugs. If you listen to our erstwhile politicians who keep trying to up the ante and show how tough they are on crime and, and, and on moral weakness, why they themselves uh, seem to be ever more corrupt and, and, and uh, uh, intellectually dead-ended, it is, we have to be protected from ourselves because we are all potential addicts. We are weak. The flesh is weak. We are born in sin. That's the underlying notion. Right? You don't buy that, then the whole system collapses. You do buy that, then the system makes sense. I don't buy it. I don't buy uh, uh, the notion that you are morally corrupt from birth that you're born in some kind of terrible sin, that God pointed out who is superior and who is un inferior. And there's no evidence about the superiority of genes. There are superiorities of culture, of lifestyle, right? of the kind of help that person get, people get when they're growing up to make choices and in the context of their lives have available to them activities and rewards that are more powerful in bringing pleasure and removing pain than drugs could ever be. Hey, folks, does this make any sense? Am I crazy? I'm called crazy and worse every time I try to promote this idea. People will sometimes listen while I try to destroy the concept of mental illness and disorders, right? But they won't touch. This is so deeply ingrained. The idea that addictions are lifelong, they're based upon genetics, they're based upon some inherent weakness in the individual, 
They have nothing to do with the choices that we make in the context of the real lives we live. That people become furious and upset. Should I stop going to AA, you ask? No. But you could question the underlying notion that this is for the rest of your life. Over my long career, I've had a number of people who have heard about my ideas and come to me and said, I spent the time of my life drinking heavily. I hurt my family. I hurt my children. I've stopped drinking. I would like to be able to go out to dinner at this point in my life because I believe I could have a cocktail with my dinner, feel like an adult, and enjoy a drink or two and not get involved again. And my answer to them is, it's your choice. Let's talk about the situation then. Let's talk about the situation now. You want to experiment with this? It's your choice. We all live by an image of what humanity is, and it's our moral responsibility to apply the image we use for ourselves to everybody else. Do you believe you have choice? Do you believe you can become a responsible human being? Is it true that sometimes we need a lot of help becoming more responsible? We need teachers. We need parents and adults who behave in front of us, showing us how to solve problems so that they guide us in our uh, uh, development. I'm not talking about saying take responsibility and blaming people for not taking responsibility. But if the notion that there's no capacity for human growth and skill in taking responsibility for one's life, then there really is no hope for an individual to choose a better life. We need parents. We need teachers. We need role models. We all need good education. I, I am so big on the idea of, of education. I never had a patient that in the course of my work with people and those individuals that I didn't guide them to finish their GED, to go take more courses, to get a college degree. This allows insight. It allows perspective. It allows opportunities to open up so that better choices can be made and we can begin to experience ourselves as we grow intellectually, socially, and morally to believe in our capacity to make a choice and to live with the consequences. You're not going to give up a drug habit or alcohol or smoking without a struggle. It's a good struggle, though. And the struggle can be made if you learn the skills to struggle. That's what should be taught. And sometimes it is. But without this awful, pernicious, invidious idea that you will struggle all of your life and unless you're involved in a program or taking a drug, you don't have a prayer of staying off that particular substance, which it is your choice. As a, as a thinking, feeling, planning human being to give up. So, I've almost gone an hour with this. Nobody's called in again tonight. I hope this show does well. Uh, I like what I have to say. I hope that some of you, when you listen, will like what I have to say. 
If you don't, call me crazy, but come up with an argument that explains why I'm wrong. Not a series of labels, but a series of facts. Show me the evidence for innate inferiority, biologically, genetically, or morally, when people become uh, involved with drugs. Come up with a better social philosophy. I think all of this stuff should be legalized, and we should be allowed to take partake in whatever we want. If we break the law or hurt other people, we should take the consequences and be punished according to the full pressure of the law. And by the way, if we break the law, run somebody over when we're drunk, it shouldn't be, well, let's give them therapy, punish them, and give them therapy when they're in prison. The idea that because you're sick, you are not responsible for what you've done. That's part of this. You're not responsible. Therefore, how can we do anything but see you as a sick individual? And sick individuals, I do believe, if they're really sick, deserve treatment. So I think that's enough for tonight. If anybody is here, anybody wants to call, I'd love to talk to somebody. Okay. I'm going to say good night. What time is it? It's almost 9 o'clock. Go watch some television with my wife. Uh, Put some music on in my headphones. Go to sleep. Take care. Goodbye.